Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today and again twice in the same month is Dr. Brian Taylor, a professor in the political science department at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, who is also the director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs. Dr. Taylor is one of the nation's leading Russia scholars and an expert on the dynamics uh, among Russian elites. His latest book, The Code of Putinism, uh, was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. He's worked on another book now and was one of the analysts who clearly said in February 2022 that uh, nothing about Putin's invasion of Ukraine was out of character. Dr. Taylor, thanks so very much for joining us again, as I said, twice in one month. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. Happy to be here. Uh, And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control uh, coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, warfare coverage. So uh, as I said, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us again, and and certainly, uh, you know, arguably one of the biggest events in Vladimir Putin's uh, 23 years uh, as uh, Russia's uh, dictator. you know, the whole Prigozhin affair has uh, raised uh, more questions uh, in some respects than it's uh, resolved. Um, it looks like he wasn't trying to overthrow, per se, the Russian leadership, right? Rather trying to score, uh, settle uh, his uh, frustration at being uh, demoted uh, below uh, Shoigu, uh, Defense Minister Shoigu and uh, Chief of Staff uh, Gerasimov. Uh, still, we uh, Brian didn't see the security. I mean, the, the army didn't stop the Wagner forces mar- marching uh, on the capital from Rostov-on-Don. Uh, the uh, FSB didn't stop them. The national police uh, didn't stop them. They got to 125 miles uh, from Moscow, where they were tearing up the M4. Um, uh, and uh, it was, you know, of all things, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus that sort of came in to uh, diffuse uh, the situation. Um, so where are we now, right? I mean, the Russian, uh, the charges have been dropped against Prigozhin as well as Wagner fighters, uh, you know, um, where, where are we right now, right? Many people are speculating that this is the beginning of the end of Putin. Uh, and uh, yet there are others who say, well, you know, it might be premature. But if we look at the long span of Russian history, oftentimes it's it's an event like this that signals the beginning of, a, of an eventual end for, for a dictator. From your standpoint, as somebody who's studied this more closely than, than almost anybody I know, what, what's your sense on where we are and where we're going? I think the first thing to note is just how striking and important this event was if we think about the entire last 30 plus years of Russian politics. There's been nothing even remotely comparable to this, I would say, during Putin's time as ruler. You have to think back to the August 1991 failed coup and the October 1993 events in Moscow, the showdown between Yeltsin and the parliament to see anything quite this dramatic. We've had terrorist attacks. We've had the war in Chechnya, obviously, but nothing like a drive on Moscow by an armed group that ostensibly is a private army, but in reality is you know, incorporated into the state in a variety of semi-legal ways. Uh, and 
as you noted, no one seems to be reacting to this. There doesn't seem to be much of an effort to stand in his way. And it started, as you know, with the move into Rostov, uh, the grabbing of Russia's military headquarters there, which is a key headquarters for control of the war in Ukraine on the Russian side. And we see these images of Prigozhin sitting down with several top generals and talking somewhat amiably, somewhat awkwardly uh, about the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff. So this is all extremely bizarre, right? Prigozhin shows up, they don't try and arrest him, they don't try and shoot him. Uh, you know, they have this weird conversation and all day Sunday, all of us are you know, glued to our screens trying to figure out is Wagner going all the way to Moscow? Who's going to stop them? What's going to happen? So uh, the first point I wanted to make was just to stress how remarkable this event was. And it comes up on the background of Vladimir Putin spending more than 20 years building up this image as a strong man, a decisive leader, someone who's restored order, someone who brought Russia uh, up from its knees, uh, the leader to whom there is no alternative. You know, he he seems to be eternal and unchallengeable. And then something like this happens out of the blue. And I will say for me, it was out of the blue. Prigozhin had been getting away with talking uh, lots of, um, I'm trying to figure out how to characterize this without going into <laughs> profanities, right? He'd been talking- be, 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 feel free as comfortable as you feel. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say he was talking lots of crap about the Minister of Defense and the Chief right. of the General Staff and uh, face no consequences. So uh, I guess maybe we should have thought he was capable of more, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected this. I didn't see it coming. So in that sense, I, I was caught a surprise as much as anyone else. And one final point that I want to make, uh, and it relates to why he or why Wagner was allowed to, to, you know, run free for most of the day on Saturday. I think it's because Wagner and Prigozhin had this weird status in the system. So it's worth talking a bit about the system. What I mean by that is the Putinist system, it has your set of formal state institutions, but it really runs on the informal relations between Putin's and other members of the elite. So there are lots of people who are extremely influential in Russian politics who hold no formal state position. An example would be Yuri Kovalchuk. He's the head of Bank of Russia in St. Petersburg, uh, so-called Putin's wallet. Uh, controls multiple important media groups. He, you know, he's one of the most influential people in Russia, but he doesn't hold a state position. And Prigozhin was not as important as uh, Kovalchuk. He was more of an outsider. But I think one of the reasons the military and the security structures were so paralyzed was because there's this figure who controls, you know, his own army to a certain extent outside the chain of command who apparently at least occasionally has a direct line to the boss. So am I supposed to challenge this guy or am I going to be in trouble with the boss if I do? Right. So it's really hard in that type of system where everything is informal and there are all these rumors about 
Prigozhin's status as Putin's chef, or as he once said, Putin's butcher, are you really supposed to stand in his way or not? And even after Putin gave a signal, you know, Saturday morning that this is treason, this is a stab in the back, it, it took a while for the force structures to figure out exactly what to do. And some of that is simple fence sitting, which we often see in scenarios like this. But I think at least as much of it flows from this weird status of Prigozhin in this hybrid political system where the informal dominates the formal. And so is this sort of the beginning of the end? How does this shift the elites, right? Because, you know, we've, we've sort of said like, oh, this is trouble for Putin. And it ends up actually not really being trouble for Putin. The, it, although this has played out remarkably publicly, right, on uh, Telegram and, you know, has been widely covered. So even if, uh, you, you know, Putin appears in Cathedral Square with a couple of thousand soldiers and said, hey, you know, you guys helped save Russia, right? I mean, turn, turn the failure into a positive narrative, uh, of we, you know, averted civil war and, you know, you guys are the strength of the nation. And uh, boy, you know, if it wasn't for me, you know, we, we'd all be in a state of nature. Is, has damage already been done? And is this the first crack, right? Whether, you know, the attack on Alexander III's life, right? I mean, you can go throughout Russian history and pick these moments where, wow, you know, this was the crack that peace presaged, right? That 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 uh, Khrushchev was gravely damaged by the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis that set him up in '64 for Brezhnev to supplant him. Right? Is is this is there something wider that we might not be seeing? I think there is almost certainly something wider. So the narrative that you mentioned about how Putin faced down a civil war and everyone should just go back to normal that will share among or that will succeed as a narrative among a certain part of the population. Uh, there's a lot of the Russian population that isn't really interested in politics, tries to avoid interacting with the state as much as possible, has tried to pretend there isn't a Russian war against Ukraine happening for the last year and a half and block all of that out. So for those people, this would have been a, a weird bit of entertainment, but maybe nothing that's going to change their lives. But I think it's different for the elite because for the elite, they are part of this system by definition, right? These are people who have uh, extra power either in the political or economic realm. They're part of this system. They don't get their news from state television. They get their news from other sources and from the rumor mill. And what they saw is the person who's supposed to be the balancer in the system, the arbiter in the system, the system who keeps everyone in line, makes sure everyone's interests are protected, make sure uh, the rents keep flowing to the people that the money is supposed to flow to. The person who's supposed to be in charge of that did not see this armed mutiny coming, or if he did see it coming, was paralyzed to do anything about it. He seemed paralyzed on the day that it happened. And then after it's over, Wagner gets to walk away scot-free and Prigozhin, uh, wherever he is, whether he's in Belarus or someplace else, also gets to walk away uh, right. scot-free. We, we heard today that they've dropped the charges against Wagner. And just to remember that they killed 13 Russian military personnel and shot down six helicopters in a plane 
uh, during this drive from Rostov uh, to Moscow. Uh, right. So as one uh, member of the Russian elite said, these people should be charged with terrorism, not allowed to, to walk away you know, with no consequences. And so I think that raises questions among the elite. Does Putin still have what it takes? Um, how could it have gotten to this point? Is the system as fragile as it looks? Who's going to protect my interests if something like this happens again? Do I need to look for other alternatives? Uh, is Putin really here forever as we, we thought? Or is his hold on power shaky? And I don't think members of the elite necessarily know the answers to those questions and they'll be hedging their bets, but they're certainly asking those questions. And they weren't asking those questions four days ago. So yes, I think this is an important moment in in hindsight may be a turning point, but I, I don't think it's over yet for the elite. I think they are really shook uh, by this, especially with the background of a war that many of them opposed uh, and that they perceive correctly is not going that well for Russia at the moment. Just to uh, follow up on this. So you think uh, that both Prigozhin's words as well as Putin's actions will both come back to haunt Putin ultimately by, by for example, uh, allowing them to flee, right? I mean, his reason was, well, they serve with such distinction on the battlefield. You know, we should acknowledge that Wagner uh, forces who were not uh, part of this uh, mutiny uh, can join the Russian army, not that they'll be popular if they join the Russian army, by the way, as we discussed uh, with Sam Bendet of CNA yesterday. I mean, so you think that this is this will have done some lasting damage uh, in people's minds. Um, and then I, I have a follow up to that as well. Yes, I do think it will have lasting damage in people's minds. Having said that, it doesn't necessarily change their overt public behavior in the short term, because they understand that there are risks and limits in the system, but they've also seen that some of the risks and limits that they thought were there can be completely trampled on uh, by someone who's as much, from the point of view of many of the elite, an outsider as they can imagine. Prigozhin, uh, just a reminder, you know, spent 10 years in prison as a common street thug in the last decade of the Soviet Union. And started with a small hot dog stand mixing mustard in his mother's kitchen. So I, I suspect many people of the elite don't have a particularly uh, lofty opinion of Prigozhin, and yet Prigozhin is allowed um, to soil the master's carpet, if I can put it that way, right. and and not, you know, get wrapped with a newspaper on the snout. You know, it's, right. it's a very weird picture uh, for people who are part of the system and thought they understood how it worked and thought they understood what the limits are, right? They know they can't stand up and say, this is an illegal criminal war uh, and that people go to jail for a long time for saying that potentially, Uh, but lead an armed mutiny on the Capitol, you can walk away from that. It's it's a very bizarre picture. There may have been confusion in this in that uh, you know, Putin uh, was allowing Prigozhin to make all of these comments, right? There was speculation that then Putin, because uh, Prigozhin was always very careful, even in his last address, to say that he was marching against Shoigu and Gerasimov, not against uh, Putin uh, himself. Um, and, and there was this sense that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Putin was allowing this to go along because 
you know, there was this suspicion that at some at, at any point Putin could hang the war and its bad conduct on, you know, Shoigu and Gerasimov and say, well, I was misled. Uh, you know, it's time for a new uh, uh, leadership, ultimately. There was some sense that Prigozhin also may have been, because there was no opposition, that uh, Alexander Bortnikov, uh, the um, uh, the FSB chief, that Petrushev, uh, the national police chief, uh, as well as others may have been complicit in this. The, the fact that there was no action is not likely to sit well with Putin either. D- does he have the power to confront the whole Siloviki, the whole you know, security establishment that is not particularly happy with how this has gone? Because in, in their perspective, from their perspective, Russia right had a lot of like deterrent clout because it was seen as far more powerful and competent than has been evidenced now. Does, does Putin face a threat potentially from the security establishment that sometimes have played the role of kingmaker ultimately? So this is speculation, but if I had to guess, I, I would say no. And um, I would say no for the basic reason that uh, all of the people you mentioned, uh, Bortnikov from the FSB, Patrushov from the Security Council, Zolotov from the National Guard, what they call in Russian Roskvardia, all of these guys have known Putin for decades, have worked with him for decades. They have these jobs because they're considered loyalists, not necessarily because they're hyper-competent. And Putin may uh, think that they didn't perform well on Saturday, but he's out there you know, singing their praises and giving them awards and things like that today. And I think part of the reason we saw this paralysis I suspect. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened on Saturday, but I think one of the reasons all the other security structures looked paralyzed was because they didn't have any clear orders. And in Russian history, when things like this happen, oftentimes these people try to avoid making a mistake and wait for some kind of clear direction. Sometimes in some of these scenarios, they go back to the boss and say, I need a written order because they want to make sure that they're not going to be, uh, you know, left out to dry because of their action or inaction. So I think on Saturday, there were these behind the scenes negotiations going on with Prigozhin as Wagner moved closer and closer to Moscow. And Roskvardi and the other groups were, um, I suspect, given instructions to prepare to protect Moscow, but not to do anything in the in the interim, right? So um, Putin may be satisfied with their behavior, and it looks like Roskvardi in particular, the, the National Guard, is going to be rewarded with even a more beefed up structure with tanks and heavy artillery uh, and things like that, which is... Uh, Somewhat strange um, because allegedly Zolotov and Prigozhin were close, and that Zolotov was seen as one of Prigozhin's backers inside the Sloviki in Moscow. So the notion that he's going to be rewarded in the aftermath of this mutiny is strange. And, and one final point about this, and it's just to clarify one of the the things that's out there about what happens to Wagner. So they're allowed to go home, you know, grow cucumbers and tomatoes at the dacha. They're allowed to go to Belarus if they want. Presumably they'll be allowed 
if they want to go to places like Central African Republic, although that's you know a, a separate discussion, we don't know what's happening with Wagner's overseas operations. But they've also been given this option of signing an agreement with the Ministry of Defense or other security forces. That's what Putin said, which I think can reasonably be interpreted to say Wagner elements could potentially go to Rosgvardia as well, which strikes me as very strange that they would be allowed to do that. So we'll have to see. Um, but it may be that the solution to Wagner is to bring him inside the tent rather than put him behind bars, which uh, I would think would be a risky strategy. But I'm not Vladimir Putin, and I'm not used to managing threats from all of these different actors. So maybe he knows what he's doing, but it looks like a gamble to me if that's how it plays out. Uh, yes, uh, indeed. And I think you should thank your, uh, be, be thankful that you're sitting up in Syracuse at a great <laughs> educational institution rather than be locked in, in, uh, in uh, the Kremlin uh, shark tank. Uh, <laughs> speaking, uh, speaking of the shark tank, um, how does this, uh, all of this, in your estimation, Brian, affect how Putin then prosecutes the war going forward, right? Wagner was a useful tool, but it was unfortunately, or fortunately, right, expended in the process uh, of, of doing this, right? I mean, so there wasn't all that much utility left to it. They weren't letting him, uh, you know, weren't letting Prigozhin have uh, prisoners uh, anymore. Um, the Ukrainians have been making some gains, even if the Russians are being uh, a little bit more uh, effective. Uh, it appears that they've crossed the Dnipro River and have a toehold on the other side, uh, you know, of of uh, the river. There have been other, we're told, secret gains that Ukraine has made that nobody is discussing uh, at this point. From from your perspective, how does Putin prosecute this, and does he have some fear? become a little bit more reckless, become a little bit more aggressive in order to show gains and maybe even lean more closely to uh, the nuclear rhetoric, right? He deployed weapons to Belarus. He says there are going to be more weapons in uh, Belarus soon, nuclear weapons. Um, how, do, how does this affect the prosecution of the war from a senior Kremlin perspective? I think the most important effect on the war from Russia's point of view is what this episode does to morale among the regular military, uh, from you know contract soldiers up to generals in the military leadership. Uh, if I was one of those people, I would wonder what this meant and wonder uh, if someone is allowed to break the rules so clearly and get away with that, what does that say about uh, you know, the stability of the state. Uh, it, it's going to raise, I think, more questions about the course of this war and the logic of the war itself. It's worth remembering that Prigozhin on Friday uh, had spoken out to say that the very premises of the war were false and mistaken, which right. was not by name directed at Putin, but obviously was an attack on the entire narrative behind the war. And this sort of episode, I think, is in some sense a symptom of how the war has gone so badly from Putin's point of view, given his initial stated objectives and his initial timeline. So if you're sitting you know, somewhere in the trenches in eastern Ukraine with the Ukrainian counteroffensive underway, you're watching all this play out behind you. 
I think you've got to wonder a bit about the staying power of this state and this military in the face of this counteroffensive. You know, when people are shooting at you, you're inclined to shoot back. Uh, but uh, you you do think that officers also are going to be wondering and asking questions. So it comes at a very inopportune time from the point of view of the Russians with the Ukrainians on the counteroffensive. Uh, now, in terms of Wagner specifically, you're right to to note that they were a wasting asset, that they no longer had the, the prison to trenches pipeline, that they lost uh, quite a few of their troops that they were using as cannon fodder in the assault on Bakhmut. But there is another part of Wagner, and this I think was the part that was involved in what we saw you know, Friday, Saturday, which was the hardened, experienced mercenary corps who had fought in Ukraine before. Some of them may have fought in Syria and other places. Uh, and those people were not uh, the cannon fodder that were you know, marching into Bakhmut. They were the ones behind those forces, keeping them going forward and that kind of thing. So although Wagner had been temporarily taken out of the fight after Bakhmut, I assume that absent, uh, you know, the recent events that they would have been used in an important role at some point, the, the small hardcore group that was left at least. Uh, if Prigozhin had been able to manage his relationship with the Ministry of Defense, which obviously he was not able to do, he was on the losing end of a a fight about whether Wagner would be subordinate to the Ministry of Defense, which of course led to the, the mutiny in the first place. So um, I'm guessing that hardcore group who seemed loyal to Prigozhin will not be on the battlefield. And that could have implications in terms of, uh, you know, they were the equivalent, I would say, uh, of well-trained special operations forces who would be useful uh, on the battlefield. And those people I suspect are going to be gone and they're not going to be there to instill discipline in these contract soldiers who um, may be in it for the money or whatever, but may not uh, feel a lot of confidence in how things are going at the moment. So I don't think it's a huge blow to, to Russia in terms of the defensive operations now, but uh, I think there are reasons to think it's been harmful in a couple of different ways. And and in terms of potentially acting out uh, in a nuclear uh, capacity, right? I mean, that remains a White House uh, concern. It tends to overshadow almost everything, right? I mean, they tend to move very cautiously and carefully in authorizing any weapons delivery, uh, even if our allies and partners are more forward leaning, in part because they're concerned about a potential nuclear exchange. I mean, you know, we discussed this last time you joined us. Does this increase, reduce, not change um, that? calculus at all, because at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin may be a lot of things, but I think completely, he may, he may be delusional, but he's not completely stupid, um, because I think that he knows how that'll play out. But does it does it change that dynamic? Does it make him somewhat more aggressive to sort of show that he's a, you know, I am actually a strong man where there could actually be a miscalculation at that point? I don't think it changes the calculation much with respect to the nukes. And I don't think it should change the U.S. administration's attitude towards the possibility of their use much. Um, in some ways, it actually undercuts one line of argument you sometimes hear, which is, you know, we can't uh, run the risk of humiliating Putin. We know he's going to 
to lash out, uh, that he's very sensitive to humiliation and that sort of thing, which is all true. He is very sensitive to humiliation, but uh, he swallowed a, a pretty big humiliation this weekend, uh, you know, and responded quite passively to it. Uh, he did not escalate in a dramatic way when his own hold on power seemed to be at risk. He negotiated with, uh, you know, the mutineers. So I wouldn't draw any inference from this that he's going to be emboldened or encouraged to, to think about the nuclear option. And I don't see the battlefield scenario for it. Oh. I would also note that um, he has not really been restrained in his operations in, in Ukraine uh, over the course of the war. If we look at just the the bombings and missile attacks on cities, and if we bring in the Kahovka Dam, uh, you know, it looks pretty clear that the Russians did that. Uh, some people are referred to the event as an ecocide, certainly the largest environmental calamity in Ukraine since Chernobyl. It's hard for me to imagine someone like Valery Gerasimov deciding to blow that dam without getting permission from the very top, which suggests right. that Putin has many options to escalate, and he's been using them for months. Uh, the nuclear option strikes me as uh, one that is not useful to him. Uh, and I think he's gotten the message from the Chinese and others that there, there's a limit there. So I don't think what happened this weekend really changes that calculation at all. And just one final thing uh, for, for those listening who want a homework assignment. Uh, Janice Stein, who's at the University of Toronto and, and one of the giants of the nuclear deterrence literature going back to the Cold War, had a piece in the Texas National Security Review within the last week on nuclear escalation risk management in the Russia-Ukraine war. And her argument is that the Biden administration has been learning by doing and uh, figuring out that some of the so-called red lines that they thought were there uh, don't really seem to be there at this point. And so uh, they've managed very skillfully uh, to get to themselves to the point uh, where now F-16s uh, are coming into right. the battle. Tanks are, are, you know, coming in. When I say F-16s coming into the battle, I don't mean immediately, obviously, but right. a willingness to to provide them to the Ukrainians. Uh, all of these supposed red, red lines uh, have now been passed. And we've seen a lot from Vladimir Putin, but no hint whatsoever that uh, the, the nuclear card is really one that is a worthwhile one for him to play. So I don't think the mutiny changes that calculus. And uh, Dr. Stein uh, is is a giant and uh, have had a chance to uh, uh, speak with her uh, because she's a, a regular annually at the Halifax uh, International Security Forum, which is one of the world's great security gatherings. The Russian people have a tendency of not moving until they move and then they move quickly. And the Chinese tend not to move until they move quickly. Right. How how has Putin damaged himself in the eyes of the Russian people? And perhaps as importantly, how has Putin damaged himself in the eyes of the Chinese who haven't quite helped him as much as he wants to be helped uh, and kept him 
you know, are helping him, obviously, are sending, you know, gunpowder and a couple of other things uh, over, obviously, buying his oil, aren't particularly interested in, you know, abiding by international sanctions. But the Chinese also have a tendency of liking winners, ultimately. How how has this sort of damaged Putin's standing with his people, but more importantly, maybe with Beijing? In terms of the Russian population, I have to admit, I'm not really sure. Um, I think at a certain level, people now know who Prigozhin is, uh, who might not have known before, who weren't really paying attention and had kind of tuned him out. I know that, uh, you know, media outlets in the West have been writing articles about Prigozhin for months and who is this guy and that kind of thing, but he wasn't on Russian television. So unless you were invested in following the war on social media, you might not have had much of a, a sense of Prigozhin or who he was or where he came from. So I think the events over the weekend would have come as a big shock. Uh, but as you know, Russians are often able to, to tune things out. And I think a lot of people will be like, you know, that was pretty weird. And then go on with their business, right? right. Um, now, there, there probably is some learning at the mass level here that, that may matter down the road. But at the moment, it's really hard, I think, to game out exactly what that might be. I, I, th I think the bigger impact inside the country has been not among the population at large, but among the elites. Uh, in terms of the second question uh, about China, uh, so I'm not a China scholar, but my sense is that they would not appreciate this show of lack of control and, and chaos coming from one of their you know, key partners. Uh, and it will make them nervous about whether Putin really is as in, in control as he had seemed to be over the last couple of decades. Uh, Xi Jinping has invested a lot in this relationship with Putin and China has invested a lot in this relationship. You're right there are clear limits, or maybe not clear limits, but limits on what they're willing to do in terms of helping Russia with respect to the war. But I think this partnership that they've developed was important to Beijing, and they will not appreciate this sense that the political system there is unstable. And I think it will lead them to maybe be a bit more cautious and a bit more hesitant about how they interact with Russia, you know, in the in the coming year, and particularly with respect to the war, given uh, what they saw over the weekend. The the final thing I would say, I, again, not as a China scholar, but I think my sense is that they often also draw limits or draw lessons from what happens in Russian domestic politics for what might happen in Chinese domestic politics. Now, China is not uh, at war at the moment, obviously. Um, but we know, for example, that they drew certain conclusions about their domestic reform process, about the ethnic nationalities issue from what happened to Gorbachev. And so for those who think Xi Jinping is drawing lessons about Taiwan from Ukraine, and I don't know to what extent he is, but if he's drawing any lessons from it, I would think this would also potentially make him more cautious about Taiwan, simply because he will have seen that things did not go the way Putin thought they were going to go. It was supposed to be quick and easy. It's been long and difficult. And not only that, it shook the political system internally, uh, which is not something Xi Jinping would want to contemplate. So that's just a stab in the dark as, as an outsider to the field. But that strikes me as at least one plausible 
reaction from Beijing. Dr. Taylor, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us again. Absolutely terrific conversation and already looking back to having you back on uh, the program again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. Great to be here.